This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Small talk, chit chat, casual conversation. Some people love it. Some people not so much. So how can we engage ourselves in better conversations? This is a talk show. So why don't we get talking? We are joined now by folks who know a thing or two about having conversations. Paula Morantz Cohen is the author of Talking Cure, an essay on the civilizing power of conversation and the dean of the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. Welcome to Reset, Paula. Thank you, Sasha. Also with us is Stephanie Boron, an assistant clinical professor at Northwestern University and a neurodiversity-affirming speech and language pathologist. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, so great to meet you. Thank you for joining us. So uh, we got to start with this, right? What do you think makes a good conversation? You first, Stephanie. Well, I think that's there's a lot to unpack in that, right? And a lot of the work that I do is supporting folks who communicate differently. So this might be um, autistic folks or otherwise neurodivergent, meaning our brains are just wired differently than the societal definition of normal. We could unpack that for another hour. Um, but I think where I want to begin is at the core of it. It's about connection for me. And I think as humans, we're all wired to want to connect, no matter how our brains work. Um, so for me, it has to do with making space for folks within communication to um, to show up in an authentic way for them and for yeah. figuring out how we can kind of navigate our expectations of communication to make a more accessible space. Yeah. What about you, Paula? What do you think? What makes a good conversation? Okay. I come at it from a more personal point of view, and it's very nourishing for me to be able to talk with people, um, to connect with them, and also to lose myself in a conversation, mm. to feel feel really free to express what I think and who I am and uh, listen to the other person in that way. And that is so life affirming. And I think we need more of it. I want a definition from you, Stephanie, because I'm curious what neurodiversity affirming speech looks like. Absolutely. It's sort of a newer um, a newer term in our field, and not a lot of people know about it. Um, so within the world of speech and language pathology, there used to be a focus on teaching folks to show up as what you might expect, mm -hmm. you know, the, making eye contact and um, maintaining a topic, having that reciprocity that is more um, what a neurotypical person might uh, present as. Neurodiversity affirming speech and language pathologists really help to support that person in being able to advocate for their own needs within communication and conversation, being able to um, help create more accessible spaces from neurotypical folks mm -hmm. in terms of how they're engaging with and allowing space for um, autistic folks or, or folks that communicate in other ways. Yeah, I love that. I'm curious, Paula, why you wanted to write your book about conversation. <laughs> Uh, well, I love it. <laughs> I'm a teacher also, so I would connect with your other guests here in that when I lead a class and a good class, I want everyone, no matter what their background or their their particular uh, makeup, uh, their how comfortable they feel it, with speech, to feel that they can talk and that we can exist as a group. And that's something that... Um, really uh, I've worked on and I feel a great seminar is one where everyone participates and the teacher is the facilitator and is part of the conversation. Is having a good conversation about asking a lot of questions, Stephanie? I mean, we had a reset listener, Erica from Riverwoods, Illinois. Uh, she called and she said that the best way to make conversation is to ask questions about other people. I, what do you think about that? I always feel like leading with curiosity is so key. And that can take so many forms, right? But I think, you know, when we lead with curiosity, whether it's through asking questions about other people 
or through getting curious about what they need to be in a space with us and to feel true belonging and community. I think that curiosity is so key. Mm -hmm. Something else key, listening, right? Because that's yes. that's very important. Uh, Paula, why do you think that some people have such a tough time really listening? I think they're just so eager to say what they want to say. And it is hard to step back and listen. And uh, But a good conversation is one that builds on what the other person said and isn't simply about waiting to say what you have to say. I think that's a very hard thing for people to do sometimes because they really want to share. But a real, really good conversation means um, creating something together with the other person and not simply waiting your turn. Absolutely. It sounds just like what Stephen Covey says, uh, who's author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. A lot of us have read that book. Uh, but he, he writes, and I say this all the time in, in personal conversations, most people don't listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. Uh, we got a comment from a Reset newsletter reader, David, uh, about listening. This is what David wrote in. He said, if we all really listen better, we may well understand each other far better. Cliff notes, and he says, quote, because I'm old. May, Cliff notes may have helped one pass a test, but true understanding comes from getting the full context of what we're taking in. If you find yourself waiting for the other person to take a breath just so that you could jump in, at least one of you is probably communicating wrong. Do you agree, Paula? Absolutely, yes. And, it, you know, when you listen, you learn something maybe about, uh, about yourself and about the other person you might not have known. And it takes the conversation in a new direction. I mean, the sense of surprise is so important. I mean, when you people are just mouthing what they already think, um, or what they think they think, <laughs> uh, it's boring. Um, and when you really listen and you are surprised by what the other person says, mm -hmm. um, it's very creative and wonderful. You agree, Stephanie? I, yeah, I think it's it's so fascinating this topic of listening because I think when you when you get a bunch of people with diverse brains in a space, um, you know the way that we're expecting folks to communicate might make it really hard for some folks to feel regulated enough to listen to feel safe in that space. So I think you know as I'm listening to you, Paula, what I'm noticing is the passion in your voice about this topic <laughs> and finding ways that we can communicate around those like true deep interests and going to that other level and that. That helps, you know, me to feel really uh, regulated and able to participate in this conversation as an autistic woman in this space. So I think, you yeah. know, being aware of uh, following other people's passions to find that that core understanding of where we can come together and also giving people, um, you know, giving them grace in, and trying to create opportunities where we give them the benefit of the, the doubt that they're doing the best they can. Let's shift to small talk. The idea of having small talk, I mean, some folks, that drives them insane, right? It's, it sounds like a nightmare. Um, it it's, could be a nightmare. It could also be a great time, though. So I'm curious your tips on making small talk. You first, Stephanie. Well, I have to giggle at this one a little bit because I, I do hate small talk. And I, it's really uncomfortable for me. Um, and as an autistic woman, there are times where I will engage in it and it's exhausting to me afterwards. Where's the discomfort coming from, though? I think for me, I connect better around those deep connections. Those like like how I was saying before, like Paula, I hear your passion for this topic, and it makes me want to sit and have a coffee with you and really go deep. The kind of like I don't know your intentions like of the small talk 
is uncomfortable for me as an autistic woman. So for me, I I tend to steer away from the tips around small talk and towards being, again, curious about what types of communication are accessible to, to different people within our community. Yeah. Paula, how do we go from small talk to having a full-blown conversation that's engaging? I, I hear this all the time. People tell me, oh, you have yeah. the gift of gab. <laughs> so obviously I chose the right career, but I mean, do you think that yeah. being a conversationalist, is, is that is that natural or uh, do you learn it? I think it's partially learned. It's partially temperamental. I, I think I agree with Stephanie about the fact that small talk can be very enervating, but if you think of it as a way into something else, um, it, it, it can be productive. But I have to say there are people that don't want to have the kind of conversation that I like to have. And then I, I guess I don't necessarily want to pursue it beyond a certain point. Mm. Um, some people just don't want to talk, uh, have an, I, I was going to say intense, but I think that's too intense. I mean, they don't want to have a solid conversation. That might be Dr. Johnson, the great 18th century, uh, you know, scholars used that term, solid conversation. Mm -hmm. And some people just don't want to have it. And I think you just have to decide, well, you know, I won't have a conversation with that person. Right. No pressure. Yeah. Is there anyone that comes to mind for you, Stephanie, when you think of someone who is good at making conversation? You know, I think that that even just the terms we're using, I'm so curious about, the, you know, good or better. You know, I am such a big fan of pulling back our um, pathologizing or um, putting on a pedestal of one type of communication versus another. Um, I will give a shout out to the neurodivergent community. And I think, you know, Paula, as I looked into your work, you you have a lot of really important things to say about social media. And I think while maybe we're all on our phones a lot, I think social media also provides access to folks who may not otherwise have a voice at the table mm -hmm. um, from a variety of marginalized groups, but including the autistic, maybe the non-speaking community, you name it. So I, I think when I, I steer away from the good or bad and towards the um, how can I hear from more voices? Yeah. Let's talk more about that. How do we make conversations more accessible. I, I'm speaking to you as a autistic woman, also an advocate for accessibility and disability rights. Absolutely. So I think this is a societal issue that we need to unpack a little bit. I think there's a lot of misinformation about folks with differently wired brains and beginning to listen to and learn from those people with lived experiences mm -hmm. is going to help us to better understand that they are capable and smart and, and can really engage in robust communication. It might look different than the way we're accustomed to. Yeah. Paula, we've been focusing primarily on talking with one other person, but how about engaging in group conversation? It's an interesting issue um, because, uh, again, as a teacher, I feel it's so important when there's a group for everyone to participate and everyone to be heard, but people have different um, different levels of wanting to be engaged as well as ability to be engaged. Uh, I do think as a teacher, we have the advantage of being able to really help every student engage. When you're in a more equal sort of situation, I get uncomfortable when somebody doesn't participate and I want them to, um, and we'll ask them a question or try and get the whole group to talk on 
one topic where everyone is engaged and you know a dinner party for example something i love but i want to have six people maybe i talk about this in the book six people is the ideal because if you get beyond six it's very hard to have a conversation as a group where mm. everybody is talking about the same thing that's a good number six yeah six less than six is okay too but i'm saying if you get to eight it, it gets hard to keep track, for sure. Yeah. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking about what it takes to have better conversations with the people around us, whether it's making small talk with a stranger in line or having engaging conversations with your best friends. We could all use some tips and tricks on how to up our conversation game. So our guests are assistant clinical professor Stephanie Boron and author Paula Morans-Cohen. So I, I want to dive into the influence of technology. You touched on it briefly, uh, Stephanie, a moment ago, but... How does tech get in the way of a good conversation? I think, you know, I, Paula and I may have different perspectives on this, and I think that inherently is part of robust conversation, right? And I love being able to come together with different perspectives. So for me, um, you know, I think, again, like thinking about what could be an accessibility aid to someone who communicates through written word yeah. or who um, is able to put their thoughts down in an Instagram post more easily than they're able to uh, verbalize, who is able to use the chat function in Zoom during a meeting or during a conversation or a class, but isn't feeling as ready to use their spoken words. Mm. So again, like figuring out how to not put on a pedestal the spoken word, but also, you know, of course, having your own individual boundaries around technology. Yeah, con we can have productive and engaging conversations online, right? Absolutely. I would say that as I have an Instagram presence through my advocacy work, and in that space, I have met a community of other autistic women and, and adults, parents, um, prof uh, providers of different types that support autistic kiddos. Um, and it has helped me to feel a lot less isolated in, in the world as a, an autistic woman and a provider. Paula, as a whole, do you think we've become more distant from each other? from strangers? Um, I think so. I think we're more polarized as a nation, certainly. I also think social media has uh, had some detrimental effects, although I agree with Stephanie. I've had, um, I have a weekly uh, discussion on Zoom with people from all over the world, actually, about Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most delightful and wonderful uh, engagements that I have. But I, I do prefer face-to-face, -face, I have to admit, although I, I do agree that for many people, for some people, the uh, social media has been a boon. Yeah, and, and because we had to use and rely on so much of it over the last three-plus years, we've all heard that sentiment that, we, you know, we just lost our social skills during the pandemic. Is that valid, Paula? Would you say that? Uh, well, a lot of my students are uncomfortable they have to relearn how to engage face to face and i think um this is something we're going to have to deal with and hopefully we will because i do think there's something to be said for seeing somebody in the flesh looking in their eyes watching their expressiveness um their whole body language mm -hmm. um and then going off with them after you know a conversation and having a cup of coffee or you know uh developing uh, a relationship that way but i think uh, you know again everything is mixed i don't want to be doctrinaire about it there are many good things coming out of our our te technological space stephanie what would you say the pandemic taught you about connecting with other people 
Wow. I, I, what do I, what do I even choose first? But I think, you know, if it made advocating for myself more normalized, it made um, creating spaces for accessibility for myself uh, a little bit easier to understand. I didn't grow up being taught how my brain worked and what I needed to communicate. And that was detrimental to my mental health. And once I was able to learn about that and to be able to advocate for that Mm -hmm. in a way that society's beginning to accept, Uh, for example, you know, sending more emails, being communicating via Zoom. Um, You know, I still like an in-person conversation from time to time. I love them. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be black and white, right? I think like the... COVID really taught me that like there is nuance and you can live in that gray area and also feel okay about advocating for yourself and your needs when they're different than maybe what the expectation is. Sure. Well, I want you to leave us with this, and this is a question for you both. What do you think we lose out on when we don't have meaningful conversations with other people? I'll go to you first, Paula. Oh, I think we see each other in much flatter, less humane ways when we don't engage with each other. We tend to, we can tend to demonize each other. I think that's happening often in this country. When we don't talk to people with different views, we don't understand who they are as human beings and we turn them into the other. And that is a very, very uh, dangerous sort of thing. And it, it's bad for us as well as bad for the community. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, what are your thoughts? What do we lose out on? I think that community piece you're talking about, Paula, is so important. So um, finding opportunities to connect with folks, to have those meaningful conversations that lead to positive shifts, even if they're small, right? Like being able to have this conversation right now where maybe someone is learning about neurodiversity for the very first time because we're having this robust conversation. I see the way that that is something that if we don't have these conversations, we're missing out on opportunities to make social change. Yeah. Stephanie Boron is an assistant clinical professor at Northwestern University and a neurodiversity affirming speech and language pathologist. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. And we're back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We're continuing our discussion on the art of having conversation. Now, earlier, we talked about ways that we can engage in better conversations and master things like small talk and connecting with new people. Now we'll turn to conversations that you might have with your partner, your friends and family members. Those tough and sometimes uncomfortable conversations from that debate during Thanksgiving to talking about finances with your spouse it can be hard to just sit down and talk. So we will explore ways to make those conversations easier and less stressful. We're still here with Paula Morantz-Cohen, who's the author of Talking Cure, an essay on the civilizing power of conversation. And now I want to introduce another voice to the conversation. Danielle Portis is a licensed clinical professional counselor at Rose Gold Crowns. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you for having me. So, you know, there are some topics that we know right off the bat, they can just be off limits, um, you know, for people to talk about. I'm talking about things that I mentioned, like religion and politics, sometimes even money. Mm-hmm. Has it always been that way that those conversations, those topics just make us so tense <laughs> before we even begin? I think so. Uh, I haven't. I don't know a time where it wasn't. Tense. <laughs> um, but I will say what makes it so tense is because those are things that people protect and it brings them to the conversation with defense and having to protect how they feel about the people they support in politics or what they believe in as far as religion or 
how they manage or don't manage their money. They're coming to conversations already feeling like they have to protect something. Yeah. And so... Money can be a sensitive issue. Exactly. And so navigating that conversation defensively already starts the communication at a deficit. Anything to add, Paula? How did we get Uh, here? (laughs) Yeah, I think certain topics have always been touchy. And certain cultures, certain things are more touchy than others. I know that um, in America, I think money is maybe more often spoken about than in Europe, Mm -hmm. for example, where maybe sex is spoken about more in Europe than in America. I'm not sure it's changed over time. But um, I think what um, was just said that there's a defensiveness, people feel threatened sometimes that they will uh, look bad or will, uh, and that is part of what keeps these things closed. And they're worried about, yeah, how they will appear or uh, how they'll be judged in in those contexts. You know, on the same note of politics, we got to mention that former President Donald Trump being indicted uh, yesterday in connection with efforts to overturn the 2020 election. I mean, how do you even begin to navigate having discussions about things like that, especially when when people may not be in alignment with your political views? Um, I'll answer that. I I think when you uh, when I deal with somebody else, I always assume that I just don't know what they may think. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the problems is often people assume that other people think like them or um, that they are horrible because they don't think like you and therefore are to be, you know, either shunned or uh, debated. And I think both of those attitudes are just destructive because no matter what the position, there's always some kernel of something that you'll be able to, if not agree with, relate to in some way. And taking that attitude of, I want to understand where you're coming from on this. So what do you think about this? Genuinely asking what you what the other person thinks as opposed to saying something like, isn't this, isn't this horrible or, you know, making the judgment right away, which then puts the other person on the defensive. Kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, leading with that curiosity first, exactly. that question. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. That stands out to me the most, curiosity, because you don't know how people think, you don't know how people feel. And again, you don't know what they're protecting and how much they have put into deciding what they believe in and what they are, you know, like those are things that we, when you think about like politics and what goes into it, those people have a following that they've built over time. And so they're supporting something bigger than the person or the, the politician. Yeah. And you really have to lead those conversations with curiosity. You don't know what the other person thinks. So maybe even saying, tell me what you think about so-and-so, or tell me how you feel about something that just happened recently. Then you can see, are you talking to an ally? Are you talking to somebody that you're curious about their perspective? Mm -hmm. And you may even want to change yours after you hear what they have to say. Or are you talking to somebody that you want to share why you feel the way you feel? But if you lead with your views, you may not ever get to that part. Yeah, you're already like 
clash at, at heads. Yeah, exactly. What do you think of the sentiment that people are too sensitive these days and, and we just can't say anything anymore? How do you think you could maybe turn that around and make it just a productive conversation? I think it's kind of a little bit of what you just described. Yeah, I think I think people are more sensitive these days, but I think I'll take that back. I don't think people are more sensitive these days. I think that people are more comfortable expressing their emotions these days, and they've always been sensitive. Uh, and so now people are more comfortable with saying that hurt me. I don't want to talk about that. Like boundaries is a buzzword now. Um, mental health is big now and more accepted cross cultures. And so people are more comfortable advocating for themselves. Mm-hmm and saying what conversations they don't want to participate in. Yeah, people are more, uh, you know, open about the fact that they go to therapy. They're telling people. People are posting about it. That was not happening once upon a time. Um, What are your thoughts there, Paula? Um, I do think, I, I love what was just said, that people are not more sensitive but more open about their sensitivity yes and uh, being able to tap into that and understand that and say i understand you're being you're feeling about that and i feel sensitive too i mean i you know or i want to share how i feel i think a mutual vulnerability is one of the things that makes for people to connect so if you can expose yourself to some extent i think other people will will be more willing to share with you. It's a hard thing to do and you have to do it authentically and not, you know, just perform it. And, and again, not everybody can do it, but I think if you can do it and practice it, you'll connect better with other people. When you see couples, Danielle, for a therapy session, what do you hear from them as common points of contention? Because I'm sure you hear some of the same things (laughs) over and over. I hear people hearing what they wanted to hear. And not, so not listening, mm-hmm. not listening or something. People respond to how something made them feel and not what they said. So, again, that defense. Now you have to now you are in a conversation where you feel like you have to protect yourself from your partner instead of understanding and being progressive with your partner, because this is somebody that you're with. Um, I hear a lot of. People not taking into consideration why they think that way maybe they were raised differently or are used to different dynamics especially if they are co-parenting with other people outside of the relationship Mm, yeah that's a big one that takes into now as i'm speaking to you as your partner i am speaking with consideration for somebody else that's not in the room and that is something that whether it's another partner a parent or something our thoughts are coming from somewhere now before we wrap i'm curious from both of you how do we become more open to having tough conversations leave us with that because i know that there may be folks listening right now who call themselves conflict avoidant you first paula um i guess just assuming the other person has uh, good intentions and uh, being curious. I mean, that's a term we've 
used again and again, being curious about why they think the way they think and not judging, uh, prejudging. And yeah. that is really central to a good conversation. And Danielle, you were walking us through some of the things that you deal with every day with couples and in couples therapy. At the same time, piggybacking off of what Paula just said, I mean, we got to learn to pick and choose our battles, don't we? Yes. yes. <laughs> How many times do you say that? All the time. I, w- I, w- I would add to what Paula just said that people need to be more comfortable with being flawed. And one thing she said earlier was we have to have a mutual vulnerability present in order to have good communication. And so we have to leave perfection out of it. If you don't know something, if you aren't amazingly intelligent in an area, it's okay. Ask questions. Be okay with not knowing everything and take the pressure off of yourself. I think a lot of anxiety and defense comes into conversations that's unnecessary. We'll leave it there. We've been talking with Danielle Portis, who's a licensed clinical professional counselor at Rose Gold Crowns, and Paula Morans-Cohen, who's the author of Talking Cure, an essay on the civilizing power of conversation. Thank you both so much.